0: Father, we believe that you are doing a work here, and you alone are responsible for taking us from zero to 120 with children. And it's for a purpose. It's because you want to train a generation, and you want to have a group that's set aside for your purposes to learn about you. We thank you for the parents who are willing to bring the children and put them in the children's ministry to help them be educated in your teachings. We ask, Father, specifically for the volunteers that, as they teach, for the teachers as they lead, that you would allow them to teach accurately the things that belong to you, to represent your word well. We ask, Father, for the safety and protection over our children's ministry. God, I also ask for your blessing upon this, that you would continue to grow it to the degree, Father, that we just are going to run out of space because you're expanding your kingdom. We ask especially for Debbie and her work in leading, that you would bless her, Father, and protect her, put your shield around her and her family. Thank you for the work that you've called her to do. Father, we put all this in your hands and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks for coming up, kids. If you have your Bibles this morning, why don't you turn to the book of Daniel. I know we were just there last week. and. uh, briefly, if you're uh, new to New Hope, we have been working through the book of John in the New Testament, working through a study called The Portrait. Um, however, we decided to take four weeks off here in the beginning of the fall and do this little short series called I Won't Back Down. And specifically, I wanted to gear this towards those who are in college, those who are in high school, those who are in junior high, because you in- encounter cultural issues every single day of your life when you're in school. But also for those of us adults, you're in the workaday world, You're encountering things that constantly cause you and challenge you to face your convictions. And it puts you in a position where you have to determine whether or not you're going to back down from the things that you believe. So the very first week, we looked at the story of David, David and Goliath. Very familiar story. We saw that David would not back down. Then last week, we looked at Daniel, 17 years old, taken from his parents' home, 500 miles away, literally in chains, led across to Babylon where he was kept as a captive. So we see two individuals who followed God no matter what. They took their stand, but things worked out pretty well for them. See, they took their stand and they were spiritually distinct, yet they were morally, culturally relevant. People looked at them with high regard, but we have to acknowledge this fact. David didn't get hit by a spear. Things worked out really well for him. Daniel got a great job afterwards. Things worked out great for him. They didn't really encounter hard times. What do you do when the giant smashes you? What happens when the spear hits you? Even though you've taken your stand. That's what we're going to look at this morning in Daniel chapter 3. What do you do when you take your stand, you don't back down, and yet things go pretty bad for you? Things happen that you never dreamed would happen. Since I taught on David and Goliath two weeks ago, I've talked with individuals in this church over the last two weeks who have encountered giants in their life that they never dreamed they were going to face Things that were so monumental it caused them to have to take a stand and the giant smashed them anyways. What do you do in that situation when those kind of obstacles are in your pathway? Peter wrote about this. I want to start out this morning by showing you a, a verse from First Peter when he, at the end of his life, was looking back over his life and thinking about this very issue that we're going to talk about this morning. Look with me on the screen at 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God so what does that actually look like when it's played out if you've gone through really hard furnace type experiences or you're in the midst of a furnace type trial experience or you expect that you're going to go through one this message is for you in other words every one of us because every one of us are going to go through those kind of circumstances So this may be a brand new story for you in Daniel chapter 3. Perhaps you're completely new to church, you've never heard this before, or you've heard it since you were five years old. I'm going to ask you to set everything you think you know about it and set it on the shelf. Let's look at it with some fresh eyes. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1, you'll be able to follow along on the screen. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon Right away, we see this King Nebuchadnezzar has a huge ego. How big is 60 cubits? Okay, floor, ceiling, 32 feet. If you look up at the peak of the ceiling, it's 32 feet high, all right? That's not 60 cubits. Double it, go to 60 feet. That's not 60 cubits. Add another building on top of that, 90 feet. This guy really likes himself a lot. He put up this massive gold statue to represent himself, 90 feet high on the plain of Dura. This statue is something that's represented in chapter 2. Matter of fact, if you get a chance later today or maybe this week to go and read Daniel chapter 2, you're going to see that the prophet Daniel spent some time with King Nebuchadnezzar because he was having really bad dreams at night. He couldn't figure out what his dreams meant. So Daniel visited with him and interpreted his dream and told him that his kingdom, his empire, is a golden empire. Now, between chapter 2 and chapter 3, 16 years transpire. And King Nebuchadnezzar kind of gets tired of waiting for the things that were foretold in his dream to come true. He's not very patient, except that he did wait 16 years, so he decides he's going to kickstart things. And he decides to put up this massive statue to himself, this golden image. So he's going to throw a black tie event, a gala affair, a red carpet celebration. And he invites everyone who's anyone in his kingdom to come. So they pull up the limos, they get out of the limousines, they kiss his hands, they bow down to him. That's what he wants to have happen. Go with me to verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's very likely that this image was in in the form of Nebo. If you want to Google that later, you'll see what it looks like, N-E-B-O. Nebo was a patron god, small g, that Nebuchadnezzar himself worshipped, and it represented the power image of his kingdom, of his government. So Nebuchadnezzar gathers the richest most influential, most powerful people in his entire kingdom, the entire nation. And we're told in verse 3, they stand before the image. Now they must have realized, because they're pretty sharp people, they must have realized what they're about to be asked to do. He's going to extract from them an oath of loyalty, a pledge. He's looking for a response to who he is because his kingdom is relatively new. His dad established it. He inherited it. And in keeping with custom, he wants an oath of loyalty. So he mails out invitations. Everybody gets their invitation in the mail. They receive the invitation from the king, and this is not a king you turn down. You show up because he invited you. Now the saying that we use in our society today is everyone has their price, right? Well, these individuals have their price, They believe that their position of power, their position of prestige, their wealth is worth what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to give a pledge of allegiance to this king. Go with me to verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is the king's spokesman, The herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire." So it says specifically, peoples, nations, men of every language, because they've been captured from the entire world. They've been captured from all the conquered nations, and they've been brought to Babylon. So he says, welcome to my dinner party. I'm so glad you could make it. We're going to have a great time together. However, you're going to have to bow down to me, or I'm going to kill you. But let's have a great evening anyways, okay, everybody? So let's join together. Choose. It's the image or the furnace. What do you want? I find it very interesting that he uses music to prepare people to worship. This individual recognizes that people's hearts are moved through music to prepare them to worship. In this case, God, small g. He's no fool. The celebration is about to begin. The big band is ready to play. Go with me to verse 7. Therefore, At that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So I'm working through this this week and I'm remembering our study in the book of Revelation. And you remember the writing that John gave us? Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language bow before the king. The music that we hear in heaven. What you see here is Satan trying to recreate for himself the same things that God acclaims for himself. And according to the king's plan, it's going to be a spectacular ceremony. So imagine with me the intimidation factor that's taking place here. You've got a 90-foot-high gold statue that the king has erected to himself. An awesome image towering above this huge crowd of dignitaries. Close by is a roaring furnace. You can smell the smoke in the air. It's so intense you can feel the heat. And the king, by the way, owns the royal philharmonic. And he's about to give them a signal. Everyone knows they must choose. So the orchestra conductor's baton is in the air. Everybody's got to make a choice, and at one moment, they all bow. The word that's used, prostrate themselves, is proscuneo, and it means flat out on their faces, worshiping full on this golden image. All the foreheads to the ground, except in the midst of the crowd of movers and shakers, are three guys. Three guys who decide to stand no matter what for their conviction that they belong to God. So the horns stop, the violins stop, the celebration quits in the middle, and an accusation comes forward. Go with me to verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, It's a good thing to say to a king who can cut your head off, O oh, king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Why do they repeat his law to him? I'm going to show you why in just a minute. These counselors, these Chaldeans, are advisors to the king. They are a master race, super intelligent individuals. And while they're bowing out of the corner of their eye, they see these three non compliant individuals. And the Chaldeans come forward and they begin the accusations. And they're not just anybody, these individuals who come forward, are the king's trusted advisors and they're going to tell him there's three who refuse to bow. And so they quote the king's edict word for word. Why do they do that? Let's see first what it means when they brought the charges against them. The Hebrew interpretation is this, they begin hacking at them. The word that's used is a call. The Hebrew word describes exactly what's going on. To devour them. We use the phrase in our language today in English when we say something like they got their teeth into them. That's what's going on here. They're trying to consume them. And the opposition is really not hard to understand. Here's why the Chaldeans are part of Babylonian royalty, they were born in Babylon, they're natives to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is Chaldean himself. Yet, he's put these Jews in control over Babylon. So there's a little jealousy going on here. Here's why they're telling him his law, specifically word for word. Archaeologists have told us that when a Babylonian king put an edict into law, it was non-reversible. Even the king himself could not overrule his own law. So they're quoting word for word because they want him to get upset about his own law. So, everyone's watching with great interest. I'm sure all the suits and ties are looking, thinking, What fools! Don't they know they're going to be thrown in the furnace? How dare they defy the king? Why would they do this? And from the king's standpoint, it would not be thinkable in the least that anyone would go against this. They've been given everything they've got prestige, they've got power, they've got wealth. They've got all the opportunities in the kingdom. Why would they not give a pledge of loyalty to his government? Go with me to verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. It's kind of an unspoken observation that I had this week as I'm working through this. It doesn't say that there, but this is what impacted me. That they showed up to the celebration in the first place. These guys aren't hiding out in their apartment. They went where the people were at, and they stood proudly of their conviction. And we're told, according to that passage, that they had administration over the province of Babylon. They've done what's right. They've not done anything wrong. They're just doing their jobs. They're doing exactly what they were hired to do. They've got administration responsibility. Yet, they're going to receive and endure the brunt of the result of living in their culture they're living in a culture that is opposed to God. And so what you're seeing here are men who stand alone when no one else will. They stand for God. So they use this phrase in verse 12, these men disregard you. Here's the word that's actually used, the word laa, And it means to treat you as nothing. Now imagine saying that to a king whose ego is so big he builds himself a 90-foot statue. Do you think that's going to tick him off? They're treating you as nothing. An ego-driven king is going to go into rage and anger. So, anger, so they get exactly the response that they want. They want to see him mad? He's mad. Can you picture the blood boiling up through his neck? His face is turning red. Look at his response, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. You ever had anyone glare at you? Your mom, maybe? Maybe? You know that feeling when someone can pierce right through you? I know that glare is taking place. The glare. He controls himself, yet the anger is seething inside him. Why did he ask it this way? Is it true? Is it true? Is that just a rhetorical question? I spent my childhood answering rhetorical questions from my mother. Mark, do you want a spanking? <laughs> Mark, do I look stupid? I answered that one once. <laughs> Had my own furnace experience, let me tell you. <laughs> it was not pretty. This, this question that's being asked is asked for a specific reason. He fully expects them to reject their conviction. He fully expects them to back down. Why? Because most people would. He knows that they're taking a stand because of their convictions. When you face individuals who challenge you about your conviction about God, their hope is that you're going to back down. That's what you see here. He wants them to back down. So let's call this confrontation for what it really is. What's really going on here in this conflict? This image, this 90-foot statue, represents the kingdom of this world. It is an image that represents his government. He wants a pledge of allegiance to it. He wants people to bow to him. Yet these three individuals who belong to God, who have taken their stand, understand that the image of God is imprinted upon them. That's what we're told in Scripture. God has put his imprint upon us. Three guys in whom the image of God dwells. Look with me up on the screen, Colossians 3.10. You, speaking of the church, have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You're being renewed through the image of God upon you. So in this sense, we are God's representatives. So the real issue that's going on here is this. Will the image of God impressed upon you back down and bow before the image of man? That's what Nebuchadnezzar sees here. And they take their stand because their loyalty to God is greater than their loyalty to the things of this world. No doubt in my mind, Nebuchadnezzar the king greatly values these executives. He personally promoted them. He put them in their positions of power. Matter of fact, if you go back to Daniel chapter 1 from what we read last week, they were found to be 10 times better than any other executives in his corporation. He really liked these guys. So that's why I think he's giving them a second chance. So at this moment, the orchestra leader has his baton back in the air. The horn players have drawn a breath. The people with the stringed instruments have their bow ready to play. And they're waiting for the response. But what came from the king's lips next sealed the deal for people who belong to God. Look what the rest of verse 15 says. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Oh, he should not have said that. That was not a response that should have been given. And if they were wondering before where their position was at, you know now why they've made the stand that they did. Who will be able to rescue you? So if their response to him, what you see in verse 16 next, seems abrupt, there's a reason why. They love God with all their heart. It reminds me of what Paul wrote. Look with me up on the screen. Acts 20, 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So watch what people of God do in the face of death. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I'm sure at that moment the orchestra leader put down his baton. Everybody lets their breath out. They put down their stringed instruments. All of Babylon's assembled who's who is watching. And at this response, they understand that they've taken a firm position. There's no turning back. We do not need to give you an answer. The Hebrew interpretation for that is there's no need to defend ourselves. We know why we're taking our stand. If it be so, verse 17 says this, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able. Hebrew language says this, our God is able. Look at the definition. These are the actual words these men used. Elah, yakel. God prevails. Elah, yakel. Can you say that with me? Let's say it on three. One, two, three. Elah, yakel. Again. Elah, yakel. God prevails. Do you have that sense of expectation that God can deliver? He may not deliver when he does it in the timing that you lay out, but God can deliver. Elah, yakel. Do you live with that sense of expectation that God can come through for you? These individuals, these three men, knew something that you may not know. Isaiah wrote specifically about a moment like this when you face the fire. Isaiah was a prophet who lived before them. He wrote about the nature and character of God. These individuals understood these writings. Let me show you Isaiah 43 on the screen and see what Isaiah had to say about moments like this. Isaiah 43.1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior." You see, these men, they know and understand the nature and character of God. He can deliver. It doesn't mean he will do it in the way that you anticipate. Can I get a witness to that? Absolutely. It doesn't always happen the way that you want it to happen. More often than not, I personally have had to go through furnace-type experiences. I've been refined by the fire, as I'm sure many of you could speak to. But our God will not allow us to go through the fire alone. That's why it says when you pass through the water, when you go through the rivers, when you pass through the fire, it means not if, but when, because it's going to happen at some point. So it's very evident to me why they say we are not going to bow down. It's non-negotiable. We will not back down. We're taking our stand. Why? Nebuchadnezzar is not their deliverer. He can't even overrule his own edict. They're not going to turn to him for help. They're taking their stand with God. So no more heroic words have ever been written in the Bible than these. But even if he does not. You don't mind circling things in your Bible? I would circle that. Even if he does not. That's a heroic position. No matter what the odds, we're taking this position. Go with me to verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. I'm looking at that phrase, certain valiant warriors, and I'm thinking to myself, why is he using the big Conan type guys? What's going on here? What's, what's the, I mean, as if Rakshak and Benny are not intimidated enough, they're now looking at the situation with these big muscle-bound warriors tying them up. What's going on here is you're seeing his rage. I'll show you who's in control. I'm going to bind you with my mightest warriors. We find in Jeremiah 29 that this is not the first time that this king has roasted people. As a matter of fact, this is a habit of his. He goes on carrying these things out. So we get verse 22 just so we understand how intense the heat is. Verse 22 is like a parenthesis. Look with me on the screen. For, for this reason, because the king's command was urgent, And the furnace had been made extremely hot. The flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. So what you get here is a sense of the magnitude of his anger. And there's an immediate execution that's going to be carried out. But his rage is so severe and so absurd, he treats it as though he's not dealing with flesh and blood. It's like he's treating with men made of steel. And so he gives these big, huge warriors the responsibility to tie them up. It helps us appreciate just how intense the heat was when we learned that they died as a result of even walking up to the furnace. So the king orders additional bellows to be opened. There's an image you can see up on the screen to help you appreciate what a furnace at that time might have looked like, made of very large kiln-fired bricks, very thick, and a ramp that approached it. This was a large furnace, but the bellows that came from underneath fed oxygen into the coals. They would send more slaves over to the bellows and begin pumping to increase the intensity of the heat. Seven times more, were told. No mortal could possibly survive a moment in that furnace. The fire is so severe, it's even fatal to come near it. So we're given this little detail that their hands and their feet are bound. They're still in their party clothes, and they're thrown into the fire. This is what I picture happened, most likely. The individuals who carried them, the big muscular soldiers, probably kept them in front of them as a shield from the heat. And as they drop them into the fire like logs on a fire, they're exposed to the full blast of the heat and they collapse and faint and die right in front of the fire because it's so intense. Uh, If you didn't know the Bible, you would expect the story to stop right there. Soldiers carry them up, they drop them, and they themselves die. And people who belong to God are killed all the time for their faith. But the story doesn't stop right there, does it? Our God steps in. The king looks to the furnace and he sees something moving, something no one expected, something that's never happened in the history of the world. He sees men walking in the midst of the fire. They've been dropped like logs on the fire and now he sees four images. How is this possible? Go with me to verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste he said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. No wonder he's in amazement. He's astonished. Word that's actually used is astonied. Look with me up on the screen so you can see the definition for the word tava. Look at how shocked he was. You would be too. Focus on the last three words, bewildered, dazed, stunned. Think of 9-11 with the towers collapsing. What's the image that's in your mind? People on the sidewalks like this. How could that be? That's the stunning thing that we're talking about. I see one, two, three, four. How could there be four people? The dead Conans are laying right there. That's not them. What's going on? How could it possibly be? Is this the pre-incarnate Christ? Did Jesus step in and catch these guys? He's polytheistic. He's not monotheistic. So he doesn't understand what's going on here. This king is mystified. So he says, like a son of the gods, small g., He doesn't understand the God Jehovah, But whatever he sees, the appearance here is not human. How could he see it? How is it possible to look inside the flame when it's heated seven times? You may not know this. I worked my way through college in foundries. Every summer, I finished flight school at college. I went home and I worked for the summers in foundries, pouring molten steel. I know what it is to look into the intensity of the fire. The electrodes that superheated the inside of the oven made it so intense there had to be doors over the oven or we would burn the retina in our eyes. We could not look into the flame. That's intense heat. That's hot. Hot, hot, hot. Knock you over hot. I've approached those furnaces. I know what it feels like. You can't get close. Machinery has to dump the metal into the ovens. That's what they're looking at here. This kind of intensity. How can he see something brighter than the intensity of the flame itself, unless God himself showed up. Something had to catch those guys. The fourth image, I believe not to be an angel, but I believe it to be Jesus himself. Here's why. I want you to look with me up on the screen at Revelation chapter one. See John's description of Jesus. And his face was shining like the sun in its strength. How hot is the sun? 5,000 degrees Celsius. How bright is that image? Can you look at that? Yet this king is looking at something brighter than the sun shining in its strength. He can't even see because it's seven times heated, yet there's four images moving around in there. How amazing. There's your Redeemer, church. Look at this description from John. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. So the executioner drops them in, and your king catches them. And they're standing in the midst of the furnace. Your God catches you and walks with you through the furnace. When you go through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the river, I will be with you. When you go through the fire, I will be with you. That's what he promised in Isaiah 41. So Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world's greatest empire, stands face to face with the God of wonders, and he loses. God showed up and made this delivery. Your king stands with you. He comes as close as he can to the furnace. The heat is so intense that he has to stand back and call out to them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come on out of there. Look with me at this passage next, verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. Look at how his attitude has changed. You servants of the Most High God and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. It's a good thing for the king that the fourth person in there didn't come out as well. That would be one king he would not want to encounter. He will one day. Babylon now is witness to the full extent of God's miracle in the way that he delivered because the God who created fire shielded them from it. Their clothing is intact. Their hair is not singed. They don't even smell like smoke. And when I saw that detail, I thought, that means somebody had to get in close enough to go, (laughs) they they don't smell. What's going on? Because if you've been to a bonfire before, you know. You can't get rid of that smell. Go with me to the next verse, 27. This is where it begins to end. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. If you don't mind circling one more thing in your Bible this morning, circle, blessed be the God. Here's why. It's not just that the church is watching you when you go through your furnace experience. Godly people watch godly people. Godless people, like this king, watch the godly go through their furnace experience. But what's the result of this trial? Look who gets the praise Did the king say, blessed be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? No. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God gets the praise as you go through the furnace experience. Now understand this very clearly. Faithfulness to God does not guarantee that you will not have tribulation in your life. What it guarantees is that God will go through it with you. Even when you don't feel like he's there, he's there. So this portion in verse 28, when it says they yielded up their bodies in worship to God, takes me back to where we ended last week, Romans 12.1. Let me remind you of that. Look up on the screen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I want you to remember this when you leave today. There's only one thing that was lost in the fire. You'll find it in verse 20 and 21 and 23 and 24 because it's repeated four times. What was lost in the fire were the chains that bound them the things that held them as captives, the things that delivered them to death are the things that were left behind through the furnace experience. That's the only thing that was lost. They're no longer bound. Verse 29, this is the end. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way, then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So the king asked a big question just moments before. Who is there who can deliver you from my hands? And now he answers his own question. He says, there is no other God who is able to deliver The king completely reversed his position. Why? Because three guys decided, I won't back down no matter what, no matter what the circumstances. And their attitude greatly affected the rest of the nation. I want you to hear this. Your battle, the furnace fire experience that you go through, is not just about you. It's about everyone watching you. Do you know that as a result of what these guys did, the entire nation was now set free to worship the Lord God, Jehovah. No longer any fear. You see, the battle is not just about you. It's about God's entire kingdom. And that's why he allows us to go through the furnace experiences. God will go through the fire with you because God went to the fire for you. The Lord Jesus Christ crucified and died and went to hell, we're told, and took the gates and the keys of hell by storm. He said in Revelation, I am the first and the last. I hold the keys to death and to hell. The one who will go through the fire for you is also the one who walks through the furnace experiences with you. You don't know that Jesus this morning. I would love to talk to you about him this morning because if you want to avoid the fires of hell, You've got to have a relationship with Him. That's what Scripture tells us. Would you pray with me, church, that God will seal these things in our heart? Father, it continues to amaze me that you wrote things 3,000 years ago plus, and yet they're still relevant to my life today and to every single person in this auditorium. Father, for those of us who are in the midst of a furnace experience right now, many times it feels like you're not there and we cry out to you, but you promised us in your word that you're right there with us. Remind us of that truth, Father. God, I take great pleasure in your comfort. And every individual here who's had a furnace experience also does. We just ask that you would give us that sense of your peace in the midst of it. And show us that the greater purpose is God. That you get the glory out of it. And it's for the sake of expanding your kingdom. Father for individuals who are here today. That may not have that relationship with you yet. I pray for your conviction. I pray Father that you would. Work on their heart. Allow them to realize that a relationship with you. Is possible an intimate. God delivering relationship. As Father we would declare there is no other God who can deliver but you. We say this in truth because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.